Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Life of David and Me. I'm Jonathan Chan and I'm so glad that you can join me today as we continue on this journey through the life of David and see what we can learn from his life, his mistakes, what takeaways we can use to apply to our lives. So before we begin, customarily we have a video clip, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the clip and we'll be right back. 我打大聲,沒死過。你覺得怎麼樣? 我跟他同一班,沒理由。沒,對不起。那麼有一想講的。我是我有點緊要事,再聯絡。What a bunch of boneheads. Have you ever had a boneheaded moment where it was sort of a good idea for the first minute or so, but rather it turned out to be a really dumb idea? Or have you ever encountered boneheads? I have. Most of the boneheads I encounter is while driving. People just make boneheaded decisions that make us wonder, quote, what in the world were they thinking? The answer? They weren't. So let's face it. We encounter boneheads almost every day, and we ourselves have done some boneheaded things, and hopefully not every day. What's one of the most common denominators of all boneheaded actions and decisions, though? It's when we are rushed or impatient. We make decisions when we are rushed or impatient. That's when we have a high probability of making a boneheaded decision. Today, the author of 2 Samuel spends three chapters talking about boneheads, the boneheaded actions the author's purpose in writing this is to warn us that impatience leads to boneheaded actions, and our boneheaded actions hurt people. Let's begin by setting the scene. Verse 8 in chapter 2. But Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had already gone to Mahanaim with Saul's son Ishbosheth. There he proclaimed Ishbosheth, king over Gilead, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, the land of the Asherites, and all the rest of Israel. So our journey begins with a civil war. The Israelites of the north versus the Israelites of the south, i.e. Judah, the house of David. All this started because of Abner, 
the former commander of Saul's army, took a boneheaded move by proclaiming Ishbosheth as king before David even made a peace proposal to him and northern Israel. The author emphasized that Abner had already gone ahead to name Ishbosheth king, which meant Abner knew that David was the God anointed one, but acting out of fear of the possibility that David might wipe him and the entire northern Israel out, he responded hastily and placed Ishbosheth as king. It's because of Abner's boneheaded move that would create this big problem for a long time. Boneheadedness can occur or usually occur when we are too quick to react. We react from our emotions as opposed to react with our head. Now, many people would agree on that. But for us Christians, to further make it a boneheaded move, we react not only with our emotions, but we also react without any consideration of thinking about how God should, would react, i.e., what would Jesus do? To take it just a smidgen of time to pray so that our hearts are calm and our eyes are clear to see what God wants us to see. Unfortunately, like Abner, we don't wait and we just jump right in and react and respond based on emotions. For Abner, he didn't wait for David's diplomatic offering. He just went ahead and did what he thought was necessary. And the remaining passages explain why this was a boneheaded move. Let's continue. Verse 12. One day, Abner led Ishbosheth's tr troops from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Up at the same time, Joab, son of Zuriah, led David's troops out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. The two groups sat down there, facing each other from opposite sides of the pool. Then Abner suggested to Joab, Hey! Let's have a few of our warriors fight hand-to-hand -hand here in front of us. All right, Joab agreed. So 12 men were chosen to fight from each side, 12 men of Benjamin representing Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 representing David. Each one grabbed his opponent by the hair and thrust his sword into the other side so that all of them died. All 24 died. So this place at Gibeon has been known ever since as the Field of Swords. The result? A fierce battle followed that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were defeated by the forces of David. What on earth were they thinking, both Joab and Abner? How could a quick scrimmage resolve a civil war? Well, both Joab and Abner thought so, and unfortunately, instead of a quick resolution, not only did all 24 participants die, a fierce and long battle ensued. What can we learn from this when it comes to boneheaded moments? You and I may not encounter civil wars, thankfully, or find ourselves in one, thankfully. But I'm sure we will, or have, or currently are in our own wars within our family, friends, churches, colleagues, partners, or spouses. One way to be a bonehead is to think that there's a quick fix when it comes to mending relationships. Well, I got news for you. There's no such thing as a quick fix, especially when it comes to mending relationships. In fact, what seems to be a quick solution ends up compounding the problem or making an already bad situation even worse. Joab and Abner thought, hey, 
Maybe the best way to solve this is a fist fight. Nope. Instead, this war lasted for a long time. And for us, it's for the rest of the chapters, as highlighted by the author in chapter 3 verse 1. That was the beginning of a long war between those who were loyal to Saul and those loyal to David. As time passed, David became stronger and stronger while Saul's dynasty became weaker and weaker. Did the relationship ever mend itself? No. Instead, a long war between them ensued. Let's conclude chapter 2 first, though, before moving on to chapter 3. Verse 18 of chapter 2. Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, the three sons of Zeruiah, were among David's forces that day. Asahel could run like a gazelle, and he began chasing Abner. He pursued him relentlessly, not stopping for anything. When Abner looked back and saw him coming, he called out, Is that you, Asahel? Yes, it is, he replied. Go fight someone else, Abner warned. Take on one of the younger men and strip him of his weapons. But Asahel kept right on chasing Abner. Again, Abner shouted to him, Get away from here. I don't want to kill you. How could I ever face your brother, Joab, again? But Asahel refused to turn back. So Abner thrust the butt end of his spear through Asahel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. He stumbled to the ground and died there. Well, no kidding, right? And everyone who came by that spot stopped and stood still when they saw Asahel lying there. Just get the job done quickly. I'm the type of person who wants to get the job done quickly and efficiently. It's a good thing, and it's also not a good thing. The good thing is that things get done and we move along. The not-so-good thing is to ignore warning signs from others. I always use this example to illustrate the different types of roles in a team, especially when we have boards and executives. There are those who get things done, love to be in the thick of things and the go, go, go. I'm like that. While there are those who prefer taking a high-level approach and see where we are all headed and what's in the horizon. They like to keep a lookout to see if danger is coming our way or we might be heading over a cliff if we keep moving the same direction. Like I said, I'm the person of the former, not the latter, because I like to get things done quickly and efficiently. I sometimes ignore the warnings and concerns from those who see things further away than I can, i.e. they are warning me that a cliff is coming, but because I want to get things done, I ignore them. That's a boneheaded thing to do. We all need each other. Everyone is created differently with different kinds of giftedness, talents, and experiences. Some are great at getting things done, formulate solutions, and just run as fast as Asahel, while others are great at being the eye in the sky, making sure that we are still headed in the right direction. If those who are on the ground ignore the eye in the sky, well, and we keep running as fast as we can and go, 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 get the job done, we might be in for a nasty surprise like Asahel. But if we are those in the sky ignore the ground, not only does it result in nothing getting done, we have no empathy for those who are putting their boots on the ground. So we need each other. Those up in the sky, eye in the sky, looking forward and seeing the horizon, making sure that we don't go over a cliff, while we also need people on the ground who get the job done and get things done. Let's move on. Verse 6 of chapter 3. 
As the war between the house of Saul and the house of David went on, Abner became a powerful leader among those loyal to Saul. Not Ishbosheth. One day, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, accused Abner of sleeping with one of his father's concubines, a woman named Rizpah, daughter of Ai. Abner was furious. Ishbosheth didn't dare say another word because he was afraid of what Abner might do. Some folks have said that I come across as a scary and an imposing person. That my temperament, even when I'm happy and jovial, can be scary at times. And when I'm angry, I look like I'm about to go on a murderous rampage. Maybe it's my loud voice, physicality, or it's probably my eyebrows. I think it's pretty much my eyebrows. But I do need to be conscious of that. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, accused Abner of a wrongdoing, Abner just responded in a tirade. Now, I didn't include that in the passage we read. You can do that yourself and read it for yourself. But just a note that Abner just responded in a tirade. Notice that Abner didn't deny or confirm the accusation. He didn't say, no, I didn't. No, he just went on a rampage. He just responded with a tirade, which led to Ishbosheth crawling in and hiding into a quiet place. He, like Ishbosheth, just hid. Yikes! Poor Ishbosheth, right? The writer didn't say Ishbosheth approached Abner with hostility. He didn't approach Abner by yelling at him or threaten Abner. No, Ishbosheth just pointed out a wrongdoing, a wrongdoing that Abner did. Ishbosheth is sort of like that someone who is not as bold as I am, or who would and would likely must have to muster up enough courage to critique me, or question my actions. And me, being a bonehead, would respond with a tirade instead of listening. Here, I can tell you this from from experience because I am an Abner type. I am that type of guy who, like I said earlier, appear to be imposing, appear to be scary, you know, because of my loud voice, my high temperament. Sometimes I get really passionate, and again, I blame it on my eyebrows. Whenever I respond like Abner, I know for a fact that I do more damage than good. Relationships are broken. The trust that was built is tossed away. The connection is cut, and people are hurt. If you are like me, an Abner, a person who, when you enter the room, everyone can sense your presence, a person who is known to be imposing with a fiery temperament, a loud voice, or someone who tends to take over a conversation or likes being the center of attention while ignoring others' opinions, the most boneheaded thing to do is take up the airspace. To monopolize the conversation, to shut people down when we get criticized, to go on a tirade of a, as a defensive, so that those who are not like us or those who took a lot of time to think and muster enough courage in preparing the critique, is suddenly shut down. Being married to someone who is completely different than me in personality for 15 years and counting, I know that when my wife comes forward and speaks to me. To critique me, I know that I need to listen. Why? Well, she's not saying this off the cuff or 
saying it as a knee-jerk reaction. To be honest, that's what I tend to do. No, she probably spent two, three, or four days, or even a whole week thinking it through, determining whether it needs to be said, to muster the courage to say it, and thinking of all the possible angles on how to say it in the most loving way possible. Let's face it, I know that when my wife speaks and criticizes me, she spent a lot of time and invested in a lot of mental energy to figure out what to say to me in the most loving way. I'm a bonehead if I shut her down with a defensive tirade. I'm a bonehead if I don't take her criticism seriously. And I'm a boneheaded idiot if I don't take her warnings seriously. Let's move on to verse 22 of chapter 3. But just after David had sent Abner away in safety, Joab and some of David's troops returned from a raid, bringing much plunder with them. When Joab arrived, he was told that Abner had just been there visiting the king and been sent away in safety. Joab rushed to the king and demanded, What have you done? What do you mean by letting Abner get away? You know perfectly well that he came to spy on you and find out everything you're doing. Joab then left David and sent messengers to catch up with Abner, asking him to return. They found him at the well of Sirah, brought him back, though David knew nothing about it. When Abner arrived back at Hebron, Joab took him aside at the gateway as if to speak with him privately. But then he stabbed Abner in the stomach and killed him in revenge for killing his brother Asahel. Joab really never intended to make peace with Abner. There was this passage before this that Abner proposed a peace treaty with Joab and Joab kind of accepted it. But really, Joab never intended to make peace with Abner. For Joab, justice needed to be served quickly. We encounter more of Joab through David's life. And Joab, admittedly, was a pain in the ass for David because Joab, he always reacted before he thinks. And Joab never prays or consults with God. Joab also has a temper. And so, when you put a person who would rather act than think, and also add that with a hot temper, and also add that with a justice warrior, you usually get a self-righteous individual. And Joab was one. He thought he knew better than David because David didn't punish Abner for Abner's murder on Asahel. But little did Joab knew that David actually met with Abner and created a peace treaty. All Joab knew was that Abner came out of David's house unscathed. Joab didn't know that there was a peace treaty and that David was leveraging some of that peace treaty to get the entire northern Israel. Abner literally abdicated the entire northern Israel to David that night without any bloodshed. All Joab did was reacted without thinking or even asking David the right questions. Instead, he just vented at David and left the house and went after Abner and killed him. What a bonehead. And so, because of Joab's actions, because of his boneheaded decisions, the war continued. The war just continued on and on. Chapter 4. 
One day, Rechab and Bana, the sons of Rimon and from Beeroth, went to Ishbosheth's house around noon as he was taking his midday rest. The doorkeeper, who had been sifting wheat, became drowsy and fell asleep. So Rechab and Bana slipped past her. They went into the house and found Ishbosheth sleeping on his bed. They struck and killed him and cut off his head. Then, taking his head with them, they fled across the Jordan Valley through the night. When they arrived at Hebron, they presented Ishbosheth's head to David. Look, they explained to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of your enemy Saul who tried to kill you. Today the Lord has given my lord the king revenge on Saul and his entire family. Did David really want it revenge on Saul? No! But David said to Rechab and Banna, The Lord who saves him from all my enemies is my witness. Someone once told me Saul is dead, thinking he was bringing me good news. Remember the Amalekite? But I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. That's the reward I gave him for his news. How much more should I reward evil men who have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed? Shouldn't I hold you responsible for his blood and rid the earth of you? So David ordered his young men to kill them, and they did. They cut off their hands and feet and hung their bodies beside the pool in Hebron. Brutal, right? Then they took Eshbosheth's head and buried it in Abner's tomb in Hebron. The last two boneheads in the passages that we're exploring today are Rechab and Bana. These two were opportunists. Now that Abner, their leader and commander, is gone and left with merely a coward puppet called Ishbosheth, they thought they needed to do something to gain David's respect and maybe entice David to provide them with some compensation. So, in their minds, they thought that, hey, David is going to take over all of northern Israel. Why not hasten it by eliminating Ishbosheth for him so that we can get some brownie points from David? But when they did, oh, were they wrong. What was their boneheaded action? Acting on the first opportunity without giving any thought if it was a godly thing to do. See, Christians, we have a moral compass, and it comes in the form of a person, Jesus. We are boneheads if we just take advantage of an opportunity without considering if Jesus would be pleased in what we're doing. Now, I know what you're asking. Some of you may be asking, hey, John, how do I know which opportunities I need to consider Jesus so that I won't be a bonehead? Should I consult with Jesus when there's a sale on Cheerios? Should I consult with Jesus when there's an air conditioner on sale for Black Friday, which yours truly purchased? How about that walk that I just recently purchased? Man, that was a good deal too. Well, to be honest, I don't know about your situation. I only know of mine. And so for the remainder of this discussion, I'll share with you my personal take on this. I believe we Christians are given a great gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who helps us determine whether the opportunity needs to be considered through the lens of Jesus. For me, the Holy Spirit gives me this uncomfortable tugging, a tugging feeling, a feeling of doubt, maybe a feeling of uncertainty, a feeling of uncomfortability, and of course, voices. The Holy Spirit provides me with voices, whether it be from my friends, my family, my mentors, my wife, and of course, the Holy Spirit. 
Taking it all in, when an opportunity arises, all these things seem to come into play for me. If an opportunity needs requires me to consult with Jesus and to see it through Jesus' lens, the Holy Spirit brings it to my attention that, hey, John, you need to wait and you need to consult with Jesus. That's when I know that I need to consider Jesus and what would Jesus do in this opportunity. I can't explain it for you because this is a personal experience that I have that is true to me and that's what the Holy Spirit gives me. When an air conditioner was on sale at Costco, I didn't sense the Holy Spirit at all. Instead, all I did was ask my CFO and treasury department, i.e. my wife. If I'm a, I just ask her if I'm allowed to buy it, plain and simple. When she says no, I just tuck my tail in and walk away. But when she said yes, giddy up, man. I'm going to buy that air conditioner. But when it came to a career opportunity, or something more involved, something that deals with something that involves with more people or involves my family. That's when the feeling of the Holy Spirit's tugging comes in. The feeling of the Holy Spirit moving in me, desiring me to have a conversation with God and with others. I'm a bonehead if I ignore God and the people he provided to speak to me. So to conclude, we sometimes wonder why authors in the Old Testament include these awful stories of people making boneheaded decisions. I guess that's why many of us prefer to read the New Testament as opposed to the Old Testament, because hey, who doesn't like a testament full of encouragement, full of Jesus loving people, full of forgiveness and blessings, and not a lot of violence, and of course, there's a lot of finger pointing at others, right? Yet we have to remember that we are all human and we all make boneheaded decisions. And yet in light of all the boneheaded decisions, God is still with his people. God still loves his people and God will still fulfill his promises. The Old Testament is, entire, is one long continuous story of, from various authors, but pieced together with one overarching theme. God fulfills his promises and God loves his people, you and me. We may not make such dramatic boneheaded decisions like shoving a spear in a guy's stomach or running after a guy who, like, and trying to kill him or have civil wars. But during this whole ent entire time between you and I, I gave you some of my examples. And though my actions didn't equate to Abner or Asahel, etc., or Joab for that matter, they still, my actions still damaged relationships. They still hurt people. And it did nothing to fulfill my calling as a light to the world around me. So, how do we take this passage? How do we take these three chapters as a whole and apply it to us today? Take it as a warning, the author says. The author is reminding us to wait on the Lord. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Have a heart of hospitality by inviting the voices in, inviting the critiques in, and not shut them out, rather than having a heart of defensiveness and hostility. Because if we do, 
If we just act on our emotions, act out of impatience, act without considering what Jesus would do and how Jesus would see it, we're a bonehead. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.